So I wonder if you've ever heard this saying, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. It's credited to Mark Twain. It's not actually my favourite Mark Twain quote. My favourite is this one. Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) There are lots of good Mark Twain quotes, but the one I want us to think about this morning is that first one. The two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. If I asked for a show of hands, I think most of us would probably know when the first one was. But I wonder how many of us would be able to say when the second one was, the day that we found out why. In other words, when we first knew our purpose and our mission and our calling in life. I want to talk this morning about something that came out of the feedback that we had from the prayer week that we had the other week, when a number of people said that they were looking to God for a sense of personal vision for their lives. So this morning's talk is, does God have a plan for my life? If you've been a Christian for a few years and you've put yourself around a bit at conferences, then it's more than likely that you will have heard talks about that question. Or rather, you all have heard talks that don't pose it as a question at all, but a statement of fact. God has a plan for your life. And the speaker then offers you three easy steps to finding out what it is. But I'm going to talk about it this morning with the question mark. Does God have a plan for my life and for your life? Because for many of us, even those who believe that he does, we're very conscious that it's actually far from easy to figure out what on earth that plan might be. And those speakers who are offering us those three easy steps are obviously very clever people. Because it's very hard to see anything in scripture that looks like three steps of any kind, easy or otherwise, for us to follow to find it out. There's um, obviously a few other problems as well with taking it as a statement of fact that God has a plan for my life. Uh, For one thing, what are we supposed to do in the meantime while we're waiting to find it? And then, what if we miss the target? What if we get it wrong? What if we take the wrong job or marry the wrong person, move to the wrong town or join the wrong church? and so on. Maybe it's actually safer to be in limbo, waiting for God to speak and not to do anything in the meantime, rather than taking any chances of getting it wrong. And that's exactly the position that many Christians find themselves in, waiting for this plan, wondering when it's coming, or worrying that they've missed it. So why is it then that so many speakers say God has a perfect plan for your life. You just have to find out what it is. I think there are probably three main reasons for that. Uh, The first reason is one particular verse in the Old Testament. I wonder if some of us will be able to think what that might be. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But the second reason is the various stories that we read about in Scripture of particular people receiving a particular calling from God to a particular ministry or role. 
So if Abraham did, and Moses did, and Mary did, and Paul did, then logically, why wouldn't that be true of me as well? And then the third reason is a bit more mundane. We just assume that he must. Because if God runs the universe, if everything that happens is under his control, if he's sovereign over everything that happens in the world, then surely, ideally, he wants to run me and have me under his control and be sovereign over everything that happens in my world as well. Because if I can just find this plan and stay within his plan, then surely only good things and no bad things will happen to me because I'm in that perfect plan of God for my life. Or so runs the logic. So already you can maybe see how just this one question has all kinds of other questions that flow from it. Like, for example, what do we mean when we say God is in control? And the assumption that if we hand our lives over to Jesus and we allow him to run them, just like network rail runs the trains, or maybe not quite the way that network rail runs the trains, but if we just hand our lives over to Jesus and we let him run them, then surely only the very best things will then happen to us only the things that are within his perfect plan for us. So let's start with that Old Testament verse that I mentioned. It's uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, as some of you will have guessed. And if we take that verse out of its context, which of course speakers tend to do, and we assume that it's talking about all people and all situations, past, present, and future, then it certainly looks very persuasive. It is certainly what I would like to hear as a Christian. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. No wonder this is one of our favourite verses. Seems pretty obvious, you would think. But if we dig just a tiny bit deeper, the first thing that we see is that the you here is plural. So he's not actually talking about each and every individual, then or now. He's talking about a group, and in this case, the nation of Israel. The second thing that we see here is the context in which God is saying it. And context is very important to meaning because, as every first-year theology student is told, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever someone wants to say that it means. Verse 1 in this chapter says this, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the people God carried, excuse me, to the people carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's at a time when they must have been shell-shocked as to why on earth God had allowed this to happen, when they needed hope and reassurance that somehow God was in what must have looked like complete disaster. 
And then the third thing that we see is when these plans for this group of people in exile are going to start. And the answer to that is in the verse immediately before R1, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back. 70 years is quite a long time before these plans kick in, isn't it? In fact, more than their whole lifetime for the generation that Jeremiah is speaking to. Just as an aside, the word that the NIV translates here as prosperu is the Hebrew word shalom, which doesn't mean prosperity in a prosperity gospel sense. You know, the idea that God promises every Christian who has enough faith and gives enough money to the preacher's ministry a big house, two cars, and lots of foreign holidays. Shalom means general well-being. And and the best way to explain what shalom means is uh, a phrase in Matt Redman's song, Blessed Be Your Name, when he says, it's when the world is all as it should be. So these plans are for their shalom, not for them to have lots of disposable income to be rich consumers. That's the American dream. It's not God's dream. (laughs) And then finally, what are these people supposed to be doing in the meantime, during these 70 years before these plans kick in? And the answer is getting on with life and blessing their community. In fact, being a blessing to the very people who've taken them into exile in the first place. Talk about love your enemies. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And peace and prosperity here is, again, that word shalom. And so too, the word prospers. So they're told to seek the shalom of the city, the well-being of the city. Pray for the shalom of the city that you're living in. Because if it has shalom, then you too will have shalom. Which I think is quite a nice vision for our ministry to Aylesbury, wouldn't you say? So at this point, some of you may be thinking, thanks very much, Steve, for destroying my favourite verse. (laughs) Thanks for telling me that God doesn't have a plan for my life after all. But hold on a minute, because that isn't actually what I'm saying. Absolutely, God has plans for us. And Jeremiah 29.11 is absolutely relevant, once we put it back in its context. But first, let me just deal quickly with those other two reasons why we assume that God must have a detailed plan for each of our lives. All of those people in the Bible who we see being called by God 
Abraham, Moses, Mary, Paul, and others. If God had a master plan for them, then why wouldn't he have a master plan for me as well? And this assumption that goes with it, that if we can only bring our lives in line with God's good and perfect plan for us, then only good and perfect things will happen. Now, the first thing to say is that even though there are indeed many stories in the Bible of people receiving a specific calling to a specific task or a particular role, it isn't something that is true of everyone that we read about. A blogger called Daniel Miller calculated that of all the people mentioned in the Bible, only one in every 227 has a specific plan for their life, which is less than one-half of 1%. Now, obviously, I haven't checked his maths, but I think it's safe to say that he wasn't intending to be completely scientific when he came up with 227. The point is that we don't see it happening to everybody. And maybe more importantly, we don't find lots of Bible verses that say it should be, apart from, arguably, Jeremiah 29.11. So, yes, we do read about particular people at particular times who got asked to do particular things. But that doesn't mean that it must be or should be the same for everyone in the same way. And then the second thing to say is that when we look at the life stories of many of these people who had a particular calling from God, and and I'm tempted to say when we look at all of the people who had a particular calling from God, being in the centre of God's plan did not for one moment mean that bad things didn't happen. In other words, there was no correlation between being in his will and only good things happening. Let me give you just one quick example of that. The Apostle Paul, who had a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus, a dramatic personal calling from Jesus himself when he was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul, who was given a unique calling to take the gospel to the Gentile world. The Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. The Paul about whose theology more books are written than any other subject, including my book, which is available at a bargain price on the bookstall (laughs) in the entrance. The Apostle Paul who you would think God would wrap his life in cotton wool to make sure that he didn't have any bad experiences that might put him off his mission and calling, that might cause him to doubt God loved him, or that he was in his will, or that would tempt him to give up on his faith because of those bad things. Apart from Jesus, if there is a better example of a called person in the whole of the Bible, of whom it could be said that God had a perfect plan for his life, then I can't think of one. So what kinds of things do we see happening in this man Paul's life? We see him planting lots of churches, preaching and teaching. We see signs and wonders and healings from his ministry. We see him writing pastoral letters that later became part of the New Testament, God's Word. 
But we also see him suffering without getting healed, despite being prayed for, with what he called a thorn in the flesh, some kind of chronic sickness. Now, we don't know what that was, but it was probably an eye condition, which meant that he couldn't see very well, to a point where he couldn't even write his own letters. But that isn't all. So many bad things happened to him that many people in his churches were doubting that he was really called by God at all. Because Paul didn't look like this perfect example of health, wealth and prosperity compared to these other travelling ministries who were going around. Compared to them, Paul admits, I've been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. I don't know about you, but if even half of those things had happened to me, I think I would have doubted everything. Doubted my calling, doubted God loved me, and definitely doubted that I'd found God's plan for my life. But you know, we don't see even a hint of any doubts in Paul. In fact, despite all of those things happening, he says this. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Throughout the Bible, we see that being one of God's people does not mean a steady supply of get-out-of-jail-free cards from the troubles of life. Because it's not the absence of troubles that distinguishes a Christian. It's knowing that Jesus is with us in those troubles. So Paul is able to say, not just from some preacher's theory from the stage, but from his real-life experiences, as perhaps the most obviously called person in the whole Bible apart from Jesus. He's able to say we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Notice that it doesn't say in this verse that all things are good in themselves because, as we know, many of them are patently not. And Paul knows that as much as anyone. It's in all things that God works for our good. So in the last few minutes, let's finish by going back to this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. 
Now, this verse is not saying that God has a detailed individual life plan unique to every single one of us that somehow we're supposed to find and to follow. And the reason for that, to my mind, is that the biggest single flaw in the assumption that he does is that this idea pictures God as a machine operator, pulling the levers and pressing the buttons of everyone's lives. It depersonalizes him, and it treats us as cogs in some cosmic machine. But the way that God works out his plans with us is relational, not transactional. Kind of like the way that a father has plans for his children, dreams and aspirations of things that he'd love to see them achieve and do, ways that he would love them to become involved in the family business. But like any good earthly father, he's a heavenly father who would never, ever want to override his children's free will, who's not a control freak, who's not a micromanager, who wants to dictate every single detail of their lives. A heavenly father who works out his plans, who builds his church and advances his kingdom in partnership with us, not just sending instructions down from heaven. In Acts chapter 15, for example, when the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem had to make an important decision, it says that they did so on the basis of what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So it was relational, not transactional. What seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So, does God have particular people in mind for particular roles and particular jobs, preferences and plans as to who does what and when and how they do it? Is there such a thing as the right person at the right time in the right place? And I think the answer to that is absolutely. But God also has a thousand other ways that he can do what he's going to do to achieve what he wants to achieve, to build his church. So he involves us, he consults us, and he invites us. He doesn't just make demands of us and use us. I think that there are three simple keys to understanding what Jeremiah 29.11 is and isn't saying to us today that we get from what we talked about a bit earlier when we looked at that original context. The first is that it's talking about plans, plural, not a plan, singular. The second thing is that it's talking about his plans for you, plural, his people, his church, and his kingdom. And the third is that it's not centred on God's perfect plan for my life. It's not all about Jesus becoming my personal life coach with an itemized schedule for me to follow every day of my life that I just need to find so that my life will be all good. It's centered on his plans for his people, his church, his kingdom, and his world to deliver hope and deliver God's future. 
His plans to bring his shalom that he invites me to come and be part of. Not as the center of those plans, but as the servant of those plans. Because it's not all about me. Jesus is the center, not me. So the Bible has very little to say about God having a personal plan for my life, singular. But it has a massive amount to say about God's plans, plural, for our lives, plural. As God's people, as his church, advancing his kingdom, transforming and blessing his world. In fact, God's plans are everywhere in the Bible. But here's the danger. The danger is that they will pass us by if we're just waiting and waiting and waiting for an individualized personal life plan to fall into our laps just for us. We'll miss the big picture of God's plans for this world and his kingdom that he wants, to, wants us to get stuck into and be a part of to the best of our ability every which way that we possibly can. And we'll miss the detailed picture of, as well of God walking with us and talking with us and guiding us in an intimate and personal relationship with him day by day. Which I think is what Ephesians 2.10 has in mind. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I think this happens as we are being prompted and nudged and guided by the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, as we go about each day. So I always say to people, if they ask me this question, does God have a calling for my life to serve him in particular ways in his kingdom? I always say, yes, I think he does. If you want that, God will be delighted to find a place and a role for you, something tailor-made just for you. But that question will always start with two things. One is our availability, and the other is our servant-heartedness. Whatever else we may be called to be and to do, it always starts with our calling to be a servant. And we never stop being called to be a servant. We never graduate from Servant Academy. The greatest of all callings is to be the greatest of all servants. So when you're looking at Christian leaders, don't follow greatness, follow servant-heartedness. And when God is looking for specific people to do specific things for him, where do you think he's going to look to find them? Which pool of people do you think he's going to draw from? Those who are already being his greatest servants. So what, rather than us worrying and fretting about finding our plan that he hasn't yet revealed to us, we should get stuck into serving him in his plans that he has already revealed to us with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. As that Nike advert puts it so well, just do it. 
Right, can I ask you to come back? Thanks. Okay, so here's just a, a few of these plans that God has for my life and for your life that we get from the New Testament. It's just a sample of them, and I'll leave you with this. Obey my teaching. Make disciples. Heal the sick. Practice hospitality. Share with those in need. Feed the hungry. Visit the sick. Look after orphans and widows. Love each other. Love your enemies. Pray without ceasing. Don't hinder the children. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Do what we see the Father doing. Build each other up. Freely give and be the servant of all. If, if our literature doesn't look like this, then you're in the wrong church because that is what we're trying to do. I've got a word from the Lord for you to finish. Thus saith the Lord, so you know it's authentic. Thus saith the Lord, here on the screen is my perfect plan for your life and for your life and for your life. Get stuck in to doing all of that. These are the plans I have for you and for this church and for Aylesbury. Plans to bring my shalom to you and to your city. Plans to give hope and a future. Get on with doing the good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Because it's when I'm doing that and it's while I'm doing that that God can speak most easily and I can hear him most easily about anything else he'd like to invite me to do as well. He has a thousand places and a thousand ways that he would love to use us in his kingdom. We only have to ask. Just like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, Lord. Send me.